to Blitzscaling, a startup. I'm Julian Newman. And I'm Chris Ye. And I am in a very fancy setup for the first time ever with an actual mic, which everyone has been bothering me about. Um, so this is the first time I've actually given in to the, properly given in to all the pressure. I was going to say, I'm glad it wasn't just me, but the audio quality really is much better. Yeah, no, everybody uh, that systematically says that, um, but uh, maybe this is the the actual solve. Um, you notice they didn't complain about my audio quality. No, no, no. They always specifically note that it's annoying how your audio quality is better than mine. It's a contrast <laughs> that's off-putting. So maybe my audio quality now is so good that... Um, it will switch the other way. Yeah. Who knows? They'll be upset about my audio quality. So, Chris, we're uh, discussing something uh, that's been top of mind for me quite a lot. And I, I have some opinions on it, but I am so, so I'm more opinionated about this than uh, our, our past topics, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Just personality traits um, of founders. Mm -hmm. And my like when I let's say ten years ago and I started my first business, my hypothesis around this was there are different personality traits or different types of founders. So let's say like a consumer tech founder will be really different from a B two B founder. Uh, over time, I've come like I think that's obviously true, but I, I've come to believe that's much much less true. Like I think there's a overall founder archetype that uh you know that works um so maybe that's a, a good starting point um you know how do you think about that like as, as an investor you, you you talk to a lot of founders like how mm -hmm. do you think of you know the, whether there's one personality type or you know what the role of the different types of businesses plays in you know, founder person, like founder personality fit. Yeah. So I would say that, of course, there is a core set of personality traits that every successful founder pretty much needs to have. And they're obvious ones like intelligence and persistence and the willingness to try things that other people aren't willing to try. I was at an event last night where I was moderating a discussion with Vinod Kosla, and he had a very pithy saying, which I thought was great, which was, you never try to fail, but you must not fail to try. And that's probably the fundamental personality trait of a founder. It's somebody who is willing to fail or willing to risk failure in a way that most people are not. But I do agree with you that there are differences typically between a B2C founder and a B2B founder and perhaps other industries or other sectors as well. Now, the primary reason there's a difference is because the nature of how you achieve product market fit is fundamentally different in these two different areas. If you're a B2C founder, almost all of your work is done indirectly. So you go ahead, you create a product, you create landing pages, you put it out there, you drive traffic to them, you look at the analytics, you do A-B testing, and you figure out, okay, here is what people seem to want to use and here is what people don't use. And that is a very data-driven approach. And that's an approach where you can actually be fairly introverted and not interact with people as much and still make that work. 
of course, you're going to have to interact with people that run your company, but you don't have to be interacting with strangers, which is one of the big differences, right? Many people who would describe themselves as introverted will also become much less introverted around people they know. And so a founder may be introverted in the sense of not wanting to go to a cocktail party and meet a bunch of strangers, but may be perfectly capable of interacting quite strongly with a team that they really know and are familiar with. On the other hand, for a B2B founder, again, founder-led sales is really critical at the beginning. And sales of B2B products, especially enterprise products, are far more personal. They involve talking with human beings, spending a lot of time with them, understanding their problems, but also demonstrating that you have empathy for them. And so it's much more hand-to-hand combat as opposed to saying, well, let me spend $100 on advertisements and look at the results. It's let me go visit this person and talk with them and see if what we're doing is solving their problems. So I think it is a little easier for somebody who is traditionally introverted to succeed as a B2C founder than to succeed as a B2B founder. So I'm interested in, so, so that's that, that's really insightful and I think correct and tracks with my experience. Here's the part where I have um, you know more questions. Just like, I feel as if, what you're saying is true, let's say in the first year of the business or the first couple of years, I mean, it's not you know, time-basing, but relatively quickly, they, in my mind, they seem to kind of like merge or rather the, the weaknesses beca- become actually, you know, really important. So for example, if you had a, B to B, a B2C founder who is very, um, uh, you have a consumer founder, right? And, and he's and th- that founder is very introverted, not good at dealing with people. Well, how's how are they going to f- fundraise, right? For example, or how are they going to do to recruit hard to recruit executives? How are they going to do partnerships? And and then quickly it just becomes like, okay, well you can't run this business because you're not able to talk to to normal like to people you don't know. On the other side, like for enterprise companies, which is what I've run in the past, a lot of people are not analytical and they like, it's not just the product stuff. I think it's actually the go to market. So dedicated my previous business did, you know, we sold hundred K ACV deals, just actual enterprise stuff. And it's like, you're, you're there. It's very hand to hand combat, but you know, you also need to be engineering a process, right? And a, a lot, what I've seen in a lot of other enterprise founders that they don't do that. They're not data-driven. They're not process-driven. And they kind of like think that everything is hand-to-hand combat because that worked for them the first, you know, uh, inning. But really quickly, it's kind of like, well, you need all of these skills, Um so, so I don't know it, like how much of a factor that is or how you... Oh, no, I, I agree 100% with what you're saying. And this is an illustration of the principle of being an infinite learner, which is that far too often the lessons that help us succeed at one stage then hold us back at the next. 
So if you're an introverted consumer founder who focuses on all the data, you eventually get to the point where you need to interact with other people. If you're an extroverted enterprise founder and you focus on relationships, eventually you need to develop those data skills as well in order to really get your company to the next level. And that's 100% true. But the fact is, we're dealing with a case of survivorship bias. Like, oh, this introverted consumer founder is now running into problems. Well, they still managed to survive longer than the 99 other founders who were trying at the same time and failed. And same on the enterprise side. So I agree. It is a problem ultimately. And you will ultimately have to learn how to tap into that other side of your personality. But the first door of business is just to survive to get to that point because 99% of people do not. Would you feel that if we continued this conversation with a kind of like, hey, here are the blended skills that you need mm -hmm. for, for all companies, would that be a disservice to the listeners or would that be accurate enough to be like useful to folks? So I think it would be useful. Uh, I think that I think most listeners are who are probably at the beginning stages, though not entirely, can really hold in their minds that something is aspirational and something is occurring later on. Just like you'll have these marketing podcasts. Here's how you spend $100 million. Well, most of the listeners don't have $100 million to spend, but they are aspirationally thinking they'll be there someday. And they have the ability to hold it in their mind that maybe this advice is not for them right now. So happy to talk about that or happy to go in a different direction, whatever you think. Okay, well, I am just looking at myself in this uh live stream and loving how professional i look so i want Isn't to it great it, it yeah it's it's night and day and it only costs 10 bucks or five bucks because i'm splitting it between two episodes so um this is the beauty of living in thailand my goodness i'm envious i am going to use this as a shout out to folks um who may be listening to this if uh, you think it's worth me continuing to use this microphone and this setup, please like the video or tell us in the comments so that, um, uh, you know, we have some, uh, Chris has some data uh, in his argument with me. I beg of you, please do this because we definitely want Julian to be of higher audio quality. It'll be better for your ears. Okay. Well, I'm going to, well, we, we have limited time anyway. So let's, you know, not make the distinction between consumer and, um, you know, uh, enterprise. But, and, and I also, like, like, there are obvious things here, right? So there's like, you know, you have to want to learn, you have to, uh, you know, be okay with things not working out. And, and those are, in a way, I mean, they're obvious, but they're also non-obvious in the sense that, you know, people don't, understand what it means to be ready to fail. What it means to be ready to fail is that you're going to fail almost all the time. And like, it's not just you're going to fail. It's like everyone else is going to be like, hey, you're failing. You suck because you fail. And you have to be fine with that. And, you know, that that that's hard. But but um, I do want to like try to contribute something that folks haven't discussed and and, and touch on personality traits that might not be what others talk about. And, and one of them that you and I have uh, like touched on 
in the past a little bit, and I'm really curious to hear what you have to say, is kind of anxiety or kind of like mm -hmm. negative emotions. Like th there really are people who have a lot more negative emotions than others. Yes. Um, how is that like, how would you think about that? Yes. So let's talk about negative emotions. And I think we can broadly focus on optimism versus pessimism. I think that there are other negative emotions. We can talk about anxiety. We can talk about depression and things like that. But those are typically not that adaptive. And for those, you, you should probably seek professional help if they're impairing your ability to live your life. And we're obviously not mental health professionals. So optimism and pessimism. What's interesting is that both of them have their place. Optimism is extremely important for most entrepreneurs. And that is because if you were not an optimist, you would never get started. You would look at the risk adjusted returns of being an entrepreneur and say, well, unless I'm part of that lucky few that actually has a breakthrough success, this is obviously worse. And I don't believe that I will necessarily be that breakthrough success because the odds are against me. And that would all be true. But if that were the case, we wouldn't have entrepreneurs and the world would be a much worse place. So we should be grateful that people are optimistic enough to say, you know what, I can break the odds. I can make it even though most of the people won't. And I'm going to go ahead and try that. So optimism is useful because it allows people to overcome the activation energy barrier to getting started and allow them to keep pushing on and being persistent. It's a lot easier to be persistent if you think you're gonna succeed. It's hard to persist if you think you're going to fail. So that activation and that persistence are probably the reasons why optimism is so powerful. It's also the case there's some secondary effects. Most people prefer to be around optimists. And so being an optimist tends to make it easier to get along with people, tends to make it easier to attract people to your cause. So that's a secondary effect that's still pretty important. But the primary effect is that notion of getting started and then persisting over time. Being a pessimist, conversely, obviously holds the negatives. You are less likely to start something. As we just described, you are going to fail to try in many cases if you're a pessimist. And that's a huge failure mode. And the other thing is many people find pessimism unappealing. Right? Somebody who's always saying no, as one person put it to me the other day, there's always a doctor no in the organization. You have to figure out who it is. Being doctor no is not something that is going to make you really popular at parties. I mean, when you go to a large company it, it, where they actually have somebody like a chief compliance officer, is that the person who's the life of the party? Typically not. And so it is challenging. However, you can then start to say, well, what are the circumstances under which pessimism is actually adaptive. And what the science tells us is that pessimists have a more realistic view of the world than optimists. They perceive the world more accurately. Optimists really do see the world through rose-colored glasses. And that's fine in an environment where failure is not catastrophic in its consequences. Right. In the world in which we're going out there and we're building consumer apps or business-to-business -business apps and it fails, it's not life and death. But there are circumstances under which it is. And of course, Theranos is a classic example, and there are many others. And under those circumstances, failure is catastrophic. And being a pessimist and being able to more accurately perceive the world and steer around the landmines that are likely to result in failure or death even becomes very powerful. And so the founder personality market fit really gets to, okay, 
to what extent is this something which is more life and death, which is more existential? Because if you guess wrong on an existential question, you're out of the game and that's it. And if you're an optimist and you continually roll the dice, sooner or later, the dice are going to come up poorly for you. A pessimist would be better able to navigate that sort of hazardous landscape. So there are, I feel as if there are a lot of, you know, components to this. So it's like, I guess it's kind of like, you should be able to be optimistic and also critical right mm -hmm. so, so you should be able to be like oh yeah i'm really really excited about this um and always excited and always thinking everything's gonna be really like, great and at the same time being realistic about whether they actually will succeed so so for example right like i i use this concept for my uh you know personal projects which you probably heard of just like thinking in bets right so and he so does yeah, so it's kind of like, hey, I'm really excited about this opportunity uh, and this project, and I think it'll really work out. But, you know, I think it'll really work out 10%, right? And and that doesn't mean I'm not excited about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm all in. Like, I'm so excited about this happening. But, you know, also, I probably won't. Right. And, and, and there's... Go there's so how would you kind of like break break this down yes to find like the optimal the optimal and i don't like the word personality type because it's it sounds like it's but it's and you're right and it's not per, it's not personality type uh, or at least it's not personality type in the way we've been describing it because we're now getting into advanced areas and fortunately i know we have very smart listeners so they'll be able to follow along the most so are. yes so what I would say is this, when you, most of the things that you read out there on the internet, in publications and the like, they are necessarily simplifying things. And they're simplifying things because it's just easier to convey a simple idea. And so here's what an optimist is. Here's what a pessimist is. Here's what it's good for. What becomes much more sophisticated is when you have the power of metacognition. So the ability to think about the way that you're thinking, the ability to understand that you don't have a personality type, you have tendencies, but what you also have is the ability to decide which tendencies you're going to bring to the fore, which particular techniques you're going to use in any given situation. And metacognition is one of my favorite topics. Uh, I tell people that when I am going through the world, and that could be on a Zoom call, it could be on stage, it could be just doing regular work, it could be having a conversation. I'm usually thinking about things on multiple levels. On one level, I am in the moment and just responding to the various things. But on the next level, I am taking a step back at the same time and saying, okay, how is this going? How is this landing? Is this the right technique? Should I be using a different technique? And being able to have that metacognitive layer is the advanced technique that can really help you succeed. So if you have that metacognitive layer and you understand how optimism works, and you understand how pessimism works, then in a given context, you can think to yourself, I believe that the most effective trait to emphasize here right now is optimism, because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to inspire the people on my team with a vision 
that will get them to buy in and move forward. Or alternately, we're discussing a very thorny problem right now. I need to bring out my pessimistic side and maybe I'll frame it as, let me just be a devil's advocate for a second because the cost of failure is so catastrophic. What about this? What about this? And the key is deciding when to use those particular traits. And metacognition is something you can also improve at by working on it. Right? The more you're aware of your ability to use metacognition, the more you practice it, the better you'll get at doing it. And I've been practicing metacognition for many, many years. It feels a little strange, right? Because we have this weird cult of authenticity in our world, which says, oh, whatever you think or feel, you must spray it out immediately as if you were a flamethrower. And that is just simple foolishness. Of course, you need to be true to yourself. But as long as you understand who yourself is, then you can choose whether or not you're going to lean into that aspect at any given point in time. So don't be someone who exists at a simple, flat, single level. Be someone who exists at multiple levels, including metacognition, and you'll be more effective. And presumably, the more you exercise the accurate part, like the parts of your personality that are useful as a founder and you exercise them at the right time in the right context, that will become your personality um, because you'll just default to doing, you know, those things. Um, like, is that kind of accurate? Yes, because as with everything, I mean, you know how the human mind works. We have neurons with a set of connections between the synapses and axons, and we're essentially giant, large language models. And the more we reinforce certain connections, the less electrical potential we have to overcome in order to actually use them. So that's why if you practice, things become easier. Things require less energy, less effort. And so absolutely, the more you practice, the better you're going to get. So in this kind of like optimism bucket, right? Like if you're crafting your own personality, right? Or you're crafting your kind of like interactions, it, the, the, what you want to be is generally an optimist, but capable of seeing the world as it is, or at least capable of knowing that you might not be seeing the world as it is and that you should take a step back and wait so that you can see the world as it is. Yeah. Um, and like, that's kind of the, the optimal structure for entrepreneurs, the optimal personality for entrepreneurs. Yes. And I think that the, the way to describe it is if you think about optimism and pessimism, they can really be summarized with two different questions. With pessimists, this is something that we're very used to, which is what could go wrong? That's fundamentally the question of pessimism. What could go wrong? What are the potential negative consequences? It's a negative consequence orientation. Therefore, the opposite, optimism, is the other side of that question, which is what could go right? If we're successful, what are the potential consequences that are really going to be beneficial? And I think that being able to balance the two is really critical. It's also the case that asking the question, what could go right, allows you to be optimistic without being Pollyanna-ish. In other words, the danger of optimism is to say, let's think about all the great things that are going to come instead of saying, let's think about all the great things that could come. You leave realism behind when you assume the positive outcome. 
So the way to be a realistic optimist is to say, here is what could go right. Here are the wonderful possibilities that exist out there in the ether. And here are the probabilities. And here's how we can maximize those probabilities. Right? It's much more powerful to paint a picture of a desired outcome, but then indicate that you as the person listening have agency in whether or not we achieve that desired outcome. I like that term realistic optimist and, and maybe the more accurate thing be realistic optimist who thinks really big. Um, yes. Uh, and thinking big is related to optimism, but I think it's actually a, a separate thing, having the expansive mindset. And of course, our ultimate patron saint, Reed Hoffman, is one of the masters of this. This is one of the main things I've learned from working with Reed over the years. I've learned so many, but probably the important one is learning how to think bigger. It doesn't come as naturally to me as it does to him, but obviously I can still practice it and get better at it. I use a wired internet now in this room so i have better connection which is uh uh I, i'm sure appreciated by our uh live stream listeners and if they do appreciate it guys please click like uh or leave a comment so that i know um okay i'll also say that thus far you have not done what often happens during these interviews which is there will be a five second pause where you're frozen and that hasn't happened at all yet so i'm pretty excited mm. by that Okay, uh, adjacent component, which is something actually you and I, when we originally met, the reason we met was so that I could improve on this, um, which is just being maybe contrarian, being, um, you know, like, like yeah, I, contrarian is kind of like the term that people yes. use, but, but it's kind of like being okay with, doing things that piss off other people all right and uh it's an interesting thing like i i listened to this interview with the ceo of spotify and he apparently according to himself is you know very 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 agreeable mm -hmm. right and he has had to work a lot on you know, the fact that it's just really hard for him to be disagreeable with people and like say things that they don't like to hear. For me, it's the opposite. Like I'm like, I actually super optimistic, but also completely disagreeable. Like I actually, I much prefer pissing off people than being nice to them. Um, and that, you know, it, it, too much. Right. And, and, um, so, so how would you like i'm giving you these kind of like two extreme yes. examples i wouldn't say that i'm super extreme but i am you know too disagreeable and then the the ceo spotify is like too agreeable how would you think about, about that spectrum well first let me mention that there is a bit of metacognition going on right now which is to say it's not so much a spectrum where you are always agreeable or always disagreeable, but rather learning how to use those traits as a tool. And so having more fine grained granularity, instead of saying I'm an agreeable person or I'm a disagreeable person, these are the circumstances under which I'm agreeable. These are the circumstances under which I'm disagreeable. But let's focus in on the disagreeability now that we've caveated and said, as always, you're gonna figure out when to use it as a tool. The key to disagreeing successfully 
or at least more successfully, is learning how to disagree without being defiant. So as you put it, sometimes it almost feels like you like pissing people off. And that's the defiant personality. And actually, many entrepreneurs have this defiant personality. It's one of the things that has driven them and allowed them to go against conventional wisdom and do things that other people didn't, simply because it comes naturally to them. But the downside of the defiant personality is if you apply it all the time, it's going to exhaust the people around you. It'll exhaust the people in your organization. It'll exhaust your loved ones. And ultimately, that will lead to negative results. So the defiance is ultimately just another tool to be used and to be used under very specific circumstances, probably more limited than a typical defiant personality would use them. So I am enormously agreeable, right? You know that from having interacted with me over the years, I am almost disagreeable to a fault, much like Daniel Eck over at Spotify. And what I have to do is I have to use metacognition to know that there are times when I need to disagree. And my personality doesn't allow me to disagree in a defiant way. Like I, I might be able to do it in a joking way sometimes, right? When the answer is like, well, if that somebody might ask a question, I might say, well, fuck no. But that's different than saying, fuck no. It's like, well, fuck no, right? You can, know, you can see the difference in the kind of disagreeability there, right? Even when I disagree, I'm going to disagree in an agreeable way. But disagreeing agreeably is fine, provided you're actually holding firm to that disagreement, right? I think that the misperception people have is unless you disagree vehemently, that your disagreement is weak and it can be overcome. And that's the assumption that people will make if you disagree agreeably. But if over time, you are consistent in the way you disagree, then people come to recognize after repeated interactions that your disagreement is real disagreement and that it cannot simply be moved by force of personality. So that's the tricky part about disagreeing agreeably. I think that ultimately it is more effective, but you have to be willing to remain persistent with it so people don't get the misperception that an agreeable disagreement is a weak disagreement. Yeah, it's... I think what you're saying is if you are disagreeable, such as me, right, th th that's actually really good in many, many ways, as long as you do it in a way that doesn't annoy other people, right? Mm -hmm. And that means, and I could say from, you know, personally, the, the way that I deal with it is I watch my kind of like emotional state. And like, sometimes I'm being disagreeable and I'm getting like a mini high from it. And that's when I know it's, I have to not do it. Um, and, you know, instead, you know, it's good to be disagreeable, um, but you want to be, as you say, firm and calm um, and also maybe introspective and questioning about it. Right? right. So maybe instead of being like, that's that's just stupid. Shut up. Right. You'd say, hey my initial reaction to that is that it's not going to work but you know where do you think i'm i'm going wrong you know stuff like that like so 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 i have like that's how what i think you're saying about yes. being disagreeable so let's lean into let's lean into because we've been talking just about the sort of emotional tone of disagreement so far 
And what I've indicated is that you can disagree in a way that is not disagreeable, right? Like you said, that's stupid. Why would you ever think that it is a very disagreeable way to say, I don't think I agree with your argument there. And let's explore that further. And the key is that let's explore that further. So whether disagreeability is not necessarily good or bad it is simply a tool. And disagreeability is good when it is a tool that is deployed when you are acting in terms of reality, right? That's the problem. People who are excessively agreeable will agree even if it goes against reality. And people who are excessively disagreeable will disagree even if it goes against reality. They'll disagree for the sake of disagreeing. We should agree or disagree for the sake of reality, the truth, whatever is going to be effective. And we must always remember that the goal is not to be agreeable or disagreeable. The goal is to adhere to truth and reality and what's effective as much as possible in a very pragmatic sense. I've come to conclude that other than kind of like stylistic issues, it's actually better to be disagreeable, right? So, so it's kind of like easier to get the style under control uh, and uh, than it is to kind of like force yourself to, you know, dis actually disagree with people. Um, I, I don't know. Like, if, does that... Your, well, there's, your... a, there's, a, there's a meta point here. And the meta point is the reason you feel that it is better to be disagreeable is because the bulk of the people in this world are too agreeable. They go along too much because of social pressure. And it is absolutely the case that if it is the only way for you to go against social pressure, then disagreeability is going to be necessary. What I am suggesting is when you are able to practice metacognition and understand what reality is, then whether you are going against or with conventional wisdom will be based on reality rather than an inherent personality tendency. And the most important thing is to focus on what is effective. And then from there, you can deploy agreeability, disagreeability, preferably in ways that minimize conflict. The only time you want to maximize conflict is if you are in a situation of persuasion when you need to actually turn your organization against a particular course of action or if you need to, let's say you're a political candidate, you're debating with someone on stage, then you may need to deploy disagreeable disagreeableness in a way that draws a stronger contrast. But that's rare in the startup world. So as an agreeable person, really what you need to be doing to kind of correct your personality, and, and here we're talking about entrepreneurship, right? Like mm -hmm. startup entrepreneurship. Correct. And presumably, let's say if you're a nurse, being more agreeable is probably just like a huge net positive. Or if you're a, you know, an elementary school teacher, um, like that, that I can see how that would be a huge net positive. And here we're talking about entrepreneurs where you're, you're trying to do something. It's not what everyone's doing. So like it's, it's, it's not that it's better for everyone, but, but I think as a more agreeable person, what you want to be doing, I assume is say like, Hey, I'm agreeing with this, but am I wrong to agree with this? And you just want to ask yourself that question often. Is that, is that right? Yes. And I think that part of it is learning to pay attention to your own inner voice or feelings, gut instincts, if you will. So 
one of the things I observed when I was younger, and I had not yet learned to disagree in an effective way, is that I would get an emotional reaction if people were moving in a direction I considered to be incorrect, but I was agreeing, at least on the surface, because I'm an agreeable person. And that would cause me some distress. And what you need to do is you need to be able to tap into those warning signs, somatic warning signs that maybe things are going wrong, and then bring them from subconscious to conscious, right? Actually examine them using your intellectual capabilities. And so if you are typically agreeing with folks, when you have that warning sign, you definitely want to look at it. I think the other thing is, as you put it, Julian, to make sure that you are examining the big decisions that you're making, examining the key assumptions, and making sure that those things are actually borne out by evidence. We've been talking a lot about personality styles, let's call it, um, which bear on um, communication and decision making, pretty much. But there is there, there are other elements right so so actually one of the really important ones is to be able to execute and get things to happen mm -hmm. yes and there's a conflict between kind of like being high in openness right so being yes. like oh look at this great idea look at this great idea and being able to make any of those ideas happen so the yes. stereotypical entrepreneur um is constantly going off in a bunch of different directions and starting projects and never finishing them um and, and i don't know to me i'm not like that right like i'm i'm very much like you know i i, I just get things done like that's just right. what 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 i'm like um and, and it's not because i force myself to do it i just like do and, and i think that's I assume for entrepreneurs, it's a huge problem if they just can't make things happen. But maybe not, because it seems like there are a lot of people like that. I, I, I don't know. Well, here's the thing, right? Ultimately, a startup is not run by one person. And so this is why having a team of complementary people is so important. And, you know, many times in my life, you know, I might form a dyad with someone with a different set of personality traits. Right. For example, here we are, we're working on this podcast together. Well, it works because of precisely the thing you mentioned, Julian, which is that you are a finisher and you make things happen and you stick with them. I tend to be pretty persistent as well, but I knew that I would not be able to exercise enough willpower and time to make this podcast happen on a regular basis. I outsourced that willpower to you, knowing you would be much better at it. And meanwhile, you've outsourced agreeability to me in terms of being able to pull in interview our guests. audience members and interview guests. Mm -hmm. So that's the key, right? Once you understand what your own tendencies are, it doesn't mean you have to then create in yourself the ability to do everything else. Of course, that's useful because there are times when you have to do it. But more often, you can create a team where you have complementary figures. And by the way, it's fascinating to me because what I've noticed is that normally I will form a dyad where I am the starter and the visionary and the optimist. And then I'll have somebody else who's much more detail-oriented and, and able to really focus on making things happen. There have been occasions 
where I've been paired with entrepreneurs who are even more towards that visionary optimistic side. And I've actually found that frustrating because I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, now I have to be the sober responsible one and I don't like it. I would rather be the one who is seeing the possibilities again in a rational way. And so this is an interesting reflection. You might try forming various dyads. You might form one where you're the optimist and agreeable one and see how that works and see how comfortable or uncomfortable it is and vice versa. Yeah. Well, see, it's interesting. Like for me, I really like getting things to happen, right? Like I actually spent like when I'm walking in the street, I'm like thinking about like, oh, okay, I have this project, I have this project, here's what I have to do. I'm just like always, you know, it's kind of like, I think, it's, it's kind of like if the, the world was a big like chess board or a risk board and I'm kind of like just structuring everything to get the outcomes that I want and trying to see around corners. Like that's my mind is always thinking like that all the time. I'm just always, always, always thinking about pretty much like how can I manipulate other people into doing what I want them to do. Right. And um, that's not precisely correct, but that's kind of like the, the, the more how disagreeable do I, way. to How do it. I pull the levers? such that I achieve the desired outcome with those levers, including other people. Yeah. Well, and often it's about other people. Like that's what's yeah. getting in the way, right? Or, or it's not true. That's what's getting in the way. It's the reason you can achieve so much is because other people go along with what you, um, it, what, what you want. So, so it's kind of like, you know, the main point of leverage that you get over that and that you can as an individual just like outperform everybody else is you know your capacity to uh you know excite people about what 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 you want essentially yes absolutely and you know let me give you an example last night i had a chance to interview vinod kosla legendary founder of sun microsystems kleiner perkins general partner founder of kosla venture multi-billionaire somebody who has revolutionized multiple industries and the way that that happened is that a friend of mine organized the event. That friend organized the event. He found the sponsors. He got the volunteers to staff the event. He was the one who was worried about how it was going to be pulled off backstage. He was rehearsing how he's going to introduce me and Vinod. And he did all of these different things. And what I provided was the ability to be on stage with this legendary figure and ask him questions and have a good conversation and keep things moving along with the audience. And it worked out great for both of us because I got to focus on what I do best and got this wonderful event where lots of people got to see me on stage in company with one of the legends of Silicon Valley, which is always a positive. And my friend got an event that made him look great, that satisfied his sponsors. And so for both of us, we were able to divide and conquer, if you will. We were able to specialize and make that happen. So, yeah, I think that it really is about leveraging others. And in my case, you could say, oh, from my perspective, I was able to leverage my friend and really get this tremendous benefit. But from his perspective, he was able to leverage me and get this tremendous yeah. benefit. So working with other people is great. But ideally, what you do is they're not just tools they're also the stars of their own story and they view working with you as a way that they're getting leverage. So, I mean, you are a venture capital investor and I'm an entrepreneur and mm -hmm. my 
belief is that the reason you're a good venture capital investor and the reason I'm a good entrepreneur is that our you know, predisposition around making the trains run on time is the opposite, right? So it's kind of like, you know, if I was a, a VC and I was trying to like micromanage the, what was happening in all my portfolio companies, that'd be really annoying. That's correct. Uh, and if you were an entrepreneur and you're like, hey, I'm just going to set like the grand vision and the culture and it's like, it's not going to happen. Right. And like, that's what I believe. But then reality is there are people who don't, can't get anything to happen and who are entrepreneurs. And I, I think like, I don't want to be, they're not rude, likely but... to be successful on. Well, you're saying, so if you're saying that if there's a high level visionary entrepreneur, they can succeed, but there is generally somebody who is a partner of theirs that is making it happen, right? They, you cannot vision your way to success without great people around you. Would you like, how is this not a, um, a personality trait? Like, as I was saying, like, it's actually a great personality trait or predisposition if you're a VC, like that's exactly what you need to be doing. Um, but how is it not something that tells you you shouldn't be an entrepreneur? Well, I think if you do not like the nitty gritty details, you probably shouldn't be an entrepreneur. And it's not that you have to necessarily be natural at it. You just have to be willing to do it. When I was an entrepreneur overseeing large numbers of people, it meant that I spent a lot of time thinking through the issues, working over the details. As I described it, you know, every Sunday afternoon, I'd say, okay, time to start looking at all the things that happened in the past week. Think about each individual person in the organization. Think about what they need. Think about what they accomplished. And that was a lot of work. And I didn't necessarily enjoy doing that work, but I did it because it was necessary to achieve the goals I wanted to achieve. And so if you are a visionary, if you are an agreeable person, if you are all these different things, you can still be a successful entrepreneur, but you will have to go against your natural instincts. Your goal should not be, I'm going to do it my way because my way is authentic. Your goal should be, I'm going to do what's necessary to win. And if I don't like doing those things, then I should probably find someone who does. Okay. One last element here. It might be the most important and, and i really don't know what 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 the answer is but it's like it, it, like being ego driven versus not mm -hmm. okay so let's say somebody who's like hey i want to work at google because i have the google brand and i don't want like to me that's somebody who shouldn't be an entrepreneur because i mean they're like they're not going to have a brand like Right. And, but at the same time, like it is, I think a lot of reason, a, a lot of entrepreneurs become yeah. entrepreneurs because they're ego driven. And, and that is dangerous. So let me address that. And then I also want to address the question we saw in the chat room. So you can take a peek at that one as well. So the thing about ego is ego can be very effective if it serves as a motivating force for the things you need to do. But ego is a tool. It's a means, not an end. And when you treat ego as the end, you end up prioritizing ego above success. And that is very dangerous because it reduces the chance of success. It's also very dangerous because 
when you do that, you tie your own self-worth to the success of your company or the public perception of your company. And that can be disastrous because while you may be doing well now, it won't always necessarily be the case. And if your company goes under or some scandal hits, if your self-worth is tied up in it, you are going to be depressed and you might even harm yourself or take your own life. I've seen it happen with entrepreneurs who became so focused on the public perception, on the magazine covers and all those various things that when something threatened to take it away, when they were faced with bankruptcy and failure, they actually took their own life. And that is not something I want to ever see someone do. So ego is a powerful motivator, but it's a means, not an end. Let's take Himanshu's question here and we can do, we have five minutes. I think that's, that's enough. So we can Himanshu, do thank you for, uh, you know, this question. Um, so Himanshu's question, is it better to be realistically optimistic or rationally optimistic? Excellent question. And of course, to begin, I have to define realistically and rationally. And the way I think about it is, I believe it's much better to be realistically optimistic. So here's how I define realism. I think realism is all about pragmatism and how things actually turn out in the real world. It's really outcome oriented. So it's about the effects. Somebody who is rationally optimistic is focused more on the principles. So it's more about the causes. And rationalism is a powerful tool, but I feel like those people who tend to describe themselves as rationalists take it too far. They seek principles, they seek frameworks, they seek ways of doing things. And then when the real world conflicts with those frameworks, they blame the real world rather than saying, you know what, any framework that I use that I've simplified enough to fit onto a couple of bullet points is never going to always apply to everything. And so I think that the realists are people who, again, start with reality and then try to figure out the best ways to deal with reality. Whereas the rationalists are people who say, here's how reality should be. Now there is a place for that. There is a famous quote by George Bernard Shaw that I know quite well because it is the motto of the Unreasonable Group, the social impact organization where I'm a mentor, which says that the reasonable man takes the world as it is, the unreasonable man persists in trying to make the world into what he thinks it should be. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. For unreasonable group, we change that to person because, of course, we are now in a point in time where just using the word man generically is not enough. But nonetheless, it is true that when you bump up against reality, if you say, I'm going to accept reality as it is, you may not do some things that the person who says, screw that, I'm going to make reality what I want it to be, is going to do. That being said, that latter course of action is harder, it's more fraught with dangers, and it is more likely to result in unhappiness. So your mileage may vary. That was so interesting, Chris, and I, I, I'm chomping at the bits to chime in, but I will resist because we're three minutes out from your next meeting. It's 9 a.m. Uh, in um, Silicon Valley, uh, so we will uh, let you go. Guys, uh, please share this um, uh, conversation with anyone that you know who's an entrepreneur who might be or might be considering becoming an entrepreneur. So you're like, hey, is this a fit for me? Um, and then, you know, subscribe, like this video so that you see these and that you're alerted when we do the live streams. Uh, and thank you, Himanshu, for the question. Chris, thank you for uh, the time. Thank you so much, Julian. Let us not forget 
if people really enjoyed this and they want early access to questions and to a community of folks who are interested in blitzscaling a startup, you should be sure to join the Patreon for this particular podcast. And Julian, what is that URL? Patreon.com slash blitzscaling. Um, so, uh, okay, I'm ending this, Chris. I want to make sure you're, uh, you're not late for your meeting. Thank you very much, Julian. Thank you, everyone, for listening.